Welcome back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. I am here with Rusty Bruchet, a special guest on the show. We are doing a father interviewing, uh, being interviewed by his son, kind of serial type podcast where we're going through uh, the career and the experiences of Rusty Bruchet, uh, the founder of Shoko, founder of Very Light, um, on the team that invented the automated light for staging. Uh, and we have uh, been discussing kind of how he got to where he is today, uh, some of the early parts of his career. Um, on episode one, we really dove into the parts of his childhood that maybe kind of created this force of hitting the market at the right time and really bringing new products to market. I think that we were talking about Concerts West and how right. um, the demand in the market was coming through Concerts West. Right. Uh, they had been part of the sock hop. Uh, they had seen right. market. They had capital. They had money. Right. They kind of saw it. They wanted to bring it up a level, make more money. Right. Was it about making it better for the customers, or was it about making more money? No, it was about bigger venues. Bigger venues, more money, yeah. more beer going out. Right. Um, and, you know, the ability to kind of build their business and grow. That's right. Yeah. Um, do you think that they would have done it if uh, the whole point of it was to not grow? Uh, no, they they wanted to do more and bigger, bigger venues, bigger acts, bigger shows. Yeah, because you see today, like all these companies are obsessed with growth, right? Right, like that's the only thing they care about. You think right. Concerts West was the same? Sure, I, mean, I think all companies have to be concerned with it because you really can't survive without it. Right, like growth is what creates a business. Well, you just you have to have more growth because you have to keep your expenses increase and people want to get paid more and want raises. I mean, it's just there's a natural pressure upward on the cost side so you have to keep up with it on the revenue side right so growth is just a natural way for yeah. businesses to kind of maintain yeah and also you want to keep going because you want to um you want to stay with the market you want to change and adapt and you know nothing stays the same very long so you have to keep moving forward to to be you want to you actually want to lead the market if at all possible right and in order to lead you got to you got to be pushing. You got to be trying new things all the time. Yeah. So I think uh, when we had, you know, last set, you know, been talking, you kind of been telling the story of how you'd been traveling around, playing the bass, making a little money, making a little scratch on the side. Yeah. Uh, figuring out kind of how to put all this stuff together. Yeah. You had some personality traits that kind of made you the center of a little bit of this universe. Yeah. Right. You had the technical skills. You had the interest. You had the work ethic where you wanted to do the work, right? Evidenced by your buddies giving you five bucks here and there to do a little bit extra, which you would do. Yeah, you weren't naive about it. You still no. charged them money, right? But you were willing to take on those deals for that money. That's right. Um, and so you go through and you have this kind of hobby sound system, which was substantial and the best, and it was the best that Dallas had heard. Right. But when you compared that to people who were capitalized and had really you right. know, kind of seen these things on the coasts that just wasn't up. New York and L.A. were still driving, right. driving the bus when it came to innovation and putting right. dollars into entertainment. And that's always the case because New York and L.A. Was all, were always the centers of the entertainment universe. Right. And that's where most of the artists uh, came out of. They either were centered in L.A. or they were centered in New York. Right. So a reputation earned through the outputs of what yeah. they were able to produce. Yeah. Yeah. And so... You had had this hobby sound system, and it had been kind of people had been asking more of it, right? right? You'd been going to an event, maybe right. you'd paid two, three hundred people. Now all of a sudden, 
Concert West is in town. They come to you knocking, and they're like, hey, man, we need to make some money. We've got a venue with 2,000 people. Right. Can you bring this thing and see if it will work? That's right. And so then you hobbled it together even more. Right. Frankenstein system a little bit. Right. And we were starting to realize that that, that we needed to do something different because, uh, you know, trying to make what I had bigger wasn't really the right way to do it. And after seeing Bill Hanley's big rig at the Texas International Pop Festival in September 69, we realized that there was, in fact, a market and that there was another way to approach it. And so that's when Jack Maxson and Jack Calmes and myself decided to form a sound business, which we called, originally we called it Show Sound, Inc. And we decided to, to officially go in the business. So um, I did... I had heard the JBL equipment at the Beach Boys show at the Texas OU weekend. And so I decided that the best thing to do would be to call JBL and tell them that we wanted uh, to build a sound system and to get their recommendation because I considered them the experts in the field. So I did call and I was uh, referred to a, a application engineer named Walter Dick. And Walter, I told him that I wanted a sound system that was big enough to do any kind of show. I wanted a really big system. The best you got. The best you got. So he specified a, a JBL system. And at that time, JBL sold uh, all kinds of components. They sold individual speakers, individual compression drivers, high-frequency horns, bass cabinets, and so forth. So he went through their JBL catalog and he specified two 15-inch speaker cabinets on each side of the stage and one uh, high-frequency horn with a one-inch compression driver on it. Actually, it was two two horns and two drivers on each side of the stage. So you're you talking about like the speaker. I mean, I don't really understand what you're saying. It's like the speaker you're talking about that looked like a horn. Um, you know, I'm talking about the gray one, like the one that yeah. you put in like a school yeah. system. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's this was like a school PA system. Yeah. Is the recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> but we bought it. We thought, okay, we'll yeah. do it. So we bought it. We bought the equipment and uh, we also bought some uh, power amplifiers and we were using the uh, Altec mixers and um, we put it together and the next job up that Contrast Quest had was... Leslie West and Mountain, which uh, Leslie West had a hit song at the time called Mississippi Queen. Okay, so he's and like he a was, blues he, guy. Yeah, he was he was a white guy, but he was he's a big he, he was really a big man. He he was about well over six two, six three, and he he was a heavy set. He probably weighed two fifty, three hundred pounds. Big, big, huge head of hair, and you know he played a little bitty red. Gibson guitar, solid body guitar. So he had this giant guy and this little, little bitty guitar, but he he was wasn't the guitar. Playing. The guitar was red. Yeah, it was red. It, yeah. was a, it was Gibson solid body red guitar, and uh, he had uh, he had this song, and he was real. It was kind of a real heavy heavy metal, not heavy metal at the time, so, but it was so, real real strong song. Yeah, Mississippi it, Queen. Yeah, and so when you you know you call the engineer guy at at this company, and you get it like the expert. And he's like, dude, this is the thing. This yeah. is like the best that we've got, and it's going to blow the socks off the kids in the audience. That's right. And then he ships it to you, and then you set it up, and then you're playing it at your house. Are you blown away by it? Are you like, dude, this is amazing? 
Um, you know, we just got it and uh, put it together, and uh, I don't know if we ever tested it. I probably didn't test it. We probably just took it down to that first show. Really? You never up. turned it all the way up? And I don't think so. It just no. wasn't? We, we didn't have any way to do it. Faith, we were working just, in the garage, you know. Yeah, we were pure in the faith in the system, yeah. right? So we go to the McFarland Auditorium. It was the same one, 2,000-seat uh, auditorium, and we set up our sound system on the st each side of the stage, and we put our mixer down in the orchestra pit because we had to get the mic cables to plug in to the mixer, and it wasn't, we didn't have any kind of snakes or anything like that at the time. And so Leslie West shows up with his band, and he shows up in a semi, a big 40-foot-long truck, and he starts unloading uh, sun guitar amplifiers out of it, and he lines the stage from stage left to stage right with sun guitar amplifiers stacked too high. So there's like 40 speaker cabinets. Yeah. And he's got like six or eight guitar heads, you know, amplifier heads, all wired together. Right. And it's just him and a bass player and a drummer in like 40 cabinets, you know? Right. And, um, and you've been doing this across the U.S.? You've been doing it across the U.S. And so we're sitting there. We're still thinking we're okay, you know? A little nervous, but we're okay. So the curtain goes up and the house lights go down and he comes out and the first song he plays is Mississippi Queen. And he hits the first chord and, of course... You can't hear a single note out of our little piddly speakers, you know. It was just a complete disaster, total, 100%. Right. right. Not one word. Right. And after about one tune, he looks down at us there in the orchestra pit, <laughs> and he kicks the microphone stand off the stage down on us, you know. He was completely disgusted. <laughs> so we suffer through this awful gig, you know. But what did our, he do for a microphone? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had to put it back up there. <laughs> but he kept, he was furious. I, was, I kept thinking he was going to jump down and beat me to death, you know. <laughs> so we, uh, we, we finished the gig and we pack everything up and we go back to Jack Maxson's house. It's like two o'clock in the morning. And we go into his living room there and we sit down and we decide to pour ourselves a scotch and water until we drink sitting there drinking, you know, and looking at each other and said, you know, man, this, uh, we are on our own here, you know. We, this is, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a different world. Yeah. You know, there's people that are in the sound industry don't have a clue about what is expected to do a live rock show. It's just, there's just no, there's no knowledge base. We're going to have to figure this out. So the next day, we just dug out the JBL catalog, and we, we went up a complete order of magnitude. We ordered 10 times as much gear as what Walter Dick had told us we needed when we called the factory. Right. And so we went up, and we started with... that. We, we, we ordered a, a speaker cabinets that they had that had two 15 inches in each cabinet, and we ordered four of those per side. Right. So there was... Uh, four bass cabinets, and then we ordered um, eight mid-range horns per side. Right. And we went and found some um, a different power amplifier that was made by a company called Marantz. They had a a power amp that was called the Marantz 16B, which was 200-watt solid-state amplifier modules um, 
and we just ordered like twenty of those amplifiers, thirty. And, and you we, had had where did you get all the money? Like where, uh, how we were you? we were um, we borrowed the money, and um, my mother um, let me um, go. To, she gave me some stock, some AT and T stock she had. She pledged to the bank so I could borrow ten thousand dollars. Oh man. So you had, inc- <clears throat> I mean, you had incredible support from yeah, your parents, I right? Did. Yeah, yeah, and that was passed on to me. I've had incredible support. Yeah, so. and I, I, uh, I, I was amazed that she did that, but she did. Yeah. And uh, Maxon had s- some money, so we, um, we borrowed it, and we also went on we, we, the the, the uh, store we bought the stuff from. We ordered, it, I think, through a, a local music store, and they gave us some credit. You know, so we could, and then we were able to finance it. The financing and everything was always a huge problem for us. We just kind of cobbled it together as best we could. Yeah, and so you were taking on a fairly decent amount of risk. We were. At that point, we were. And did you know that you were taking on that kind of risk? Yeah, we knew, but we, we felt that we could make it work. So we built that first system. and um, but, but hold on. To couple that amount of risk with that amount of uncertainty is not, I mean, you were taking on massive amount of risk. Right. To build something that you really had no idea how to build, right. you just had two or three signals that it would probably work if you built it. Yeah, if we could get it loud enough. At that point, the whole issue is can we get enough level volume so we can so that we can keep up with the artist and get the sound out into the audience, you know, to several thousand people. Because the other venue in Dallas that they wanted to play was the Dallas Convention Center. Yeah. And at that time, that was a 10,000-seat arena. Right. And so that one, we knew we were going to have to have a lot of equipment and to be able to do that. Was there a really strong relationship? I, I can't imagine sound equipment at the time being hyper-efficient, right? And so right. was there a relationship between the amount of power you needed and the amount of sound that you got out of the system? Or was that not really an issue? No, it was, it was, that was the whole issue. <clears throat> you had to be able to get enough power, but... Each speaker couldn't handle much more than 100 watts. So, you know, you ended up having to have a lot of amplifiers. And the amplifiers of the day, you couldn't get much more than 100 watts, you know, other than right. that big Macintosh 350-watt thing, which was so big and heavy and expensive, it wasn't practical for us at that time. We couldn't afford that. Right. It cost like $15,000 a piece or something. I don't remember what it was, but crazy amount of money. So uh, the Marantz amplifier was a good choice because it was rel- relatively affordable and it, with these 100-watt modules, it matched up at the time with the speakers pretty well. And so we put this system together and the, the first gig that came up after we built up this system that Max and I designed there after the Leslie West show was Three Dog Night. Yep. And, um, and Concerts West was... At that time, they had moved up to larger venues, and what they were doing is, as the band would go from one town to the next, they would just go get whatever local sound business that they could get to come up and do some whatever sound equipment they could come up with. So the band would go from one city to the next, and they never knew what the sound system was going to be. Right. So when they got to Dallas, at, at the Dallas Convention Center, Memorial Auditorium it was called, um, Three Dog Night came, and we had this sound system we built, and they absolutely loved it. They just thought it was the greatest thing. Yeah, I mean, they heard. tried 
all of these hodgepodge running, yeah. ra- ranging from people not caring at all, yeah. all the way out to yeah. like you guys coming in and taking yeah. it seriously. Yeah. And so you didn't have to have this amazing thing. It was already amazing relative to the market. That's right. Yeah. And so they said, we want to take it with us. And so uh, we just said, okay. And so Maxon went on the road with them. We went down to the Ryder truck rental place and we rented a big yellow Ryder truck and we loaded up the sound system in it and Maxon took the truck and went on the road with Three Dog Night and started doing their sound. Yeah, so you could probably go back in time and figure out places where people put a speaker in a car and became a traveling sound man for the band. But this could be a very significant point in time as to like starting the touring industry. That's or, right. You, was, this was the beginning of the touring industry. Yeah. Right. And you, you would credit the three dog night tour coming through Dallas, taking the sound system that you guys had built and yeah. going on the road as yeah. maybe a spark that started that fire. That's right. And did that inspire other people to start touring as well? Yeah. Right. And so, but they did in back in the day, you don't have the internet how does the word get around? Are you able to hit all of America before yeah. that? So we, we went around in, in, the, in the first year that we started the company, which we started in 1970. Uh, we, we drove and went to almost every state in the United States yeah. doing a show. And uh, because right after Three Dog went through, I went back to the garage and built a second system. Right. And I took it down to Memorial Auditorium. And the next band up was Led Zeppelin. Okay. And the exact same thing happened again. Zeppelin heard the system. They loved it and said we want it. And I went on the road with them, rented a truck, and I became their sound engineer. So you became the infamous sound man for Led Zeppelin. Right. Because Three Dog Night took the other sound guy first. That's right. Right. And you went and did you build the exact same system? Yeah. I mean, we were constantly improving, but pretty much at that point it was the same idea, the same amount of equipment. It was about a 3,000-watt system. That's fantastic. At, at that time. So we're going to talk about that more. We're going to get a little bit uh, into the detail of what it would be like to be on the road with Led Zeppelin, being the first sound guy traveling around the United States. When we come back, uh, why don't you guys listen to my daughter practice the cello. <laughs> with Matt and Dan. Uh, today we're interviewing Rusty Bruchet, my father, talking about his career. Um, I think at the point of the story we were, where you uh, had just hit the road and yep. were becoming the sound man for Led Zeppelin. That's but there's right. some backstory that I want to get into before we tell that particular part of it. And that's kind of what you were doing in your normal day-to-day life. You had gone to SMU. Right. You'd gotten a mechanical engineering degree. You were going to hit the world. You'd come out of the 50s and the 60s. Uh, there was a very pre-planned path. Um, right. That's not become a roadie and go on the road. No. The, the thing to do in those days was go to work for Texas Instruments, which was the big uh, employer in Dallas. They were basically building military equipment, and um, they also were eventually going to become famous for the integrated circuit. But originally it started out... Uh, as a big company making uh, various types of military systems. And um, 
I, I interviewed with them after in my senior year and they hired me. And so when I graduated in 1968, I went to work there. And I went to work into a, a department that was um, building a, it was a laser development group. The laser had just been invented about two years before and TI was already on it and actually designed a solid state laser into a range finding system for a tank. And so um, the group that I was put into was developing solid state, what they call YAG lasers, Y-A-G, which was a type of crystal that uh, produced a, a laser beam at 1.06 micron wave. Yeah, I'm, and I'm sure people uh, need to know that. Um, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. That's pretty specific. Uh, it was. That's what it's like talking to you. At times, you get hit with the facts, you know, that's just right. the absolute facts. Um, so you were working at TI. You is this where you got exposed to lighting? Yeah, because you know lasers are light, right? Yes. Yeah, so and I mean, uh, in order to make a, a laser work, um, you had to pump it with arc lamps. Okay. So. Um, and how is it, what is an arc lamp in relation to, like, compare it to, like, a light bulb that I would think of turning on a lamp? Well, a light bulb um, typically would have a tungsten filament in it, and you would run current through the filament, and it heats up. Yeah. An arc lamp uses two electrodes, a positive and negative, and you put a big voltage on it, and it creates, an, like, a lightning bolt between the two electrodes, and that is an arc. Right. And it emits light, and so that's called an arc lamp. Okay. So uh, the, the, the laser, in the early stages of what I was working on at that time, the laser uh, crystal was a rod that was like an eighth of an inch in diameter and maybe three or four inches long. It was yeah. made of this material called YAG. I can't remember what YAG stands for, but it's a big Some sort of metal or term. something? No, it was a... It was a synthetic crystal of some sort. I can't okay. remember exactly. And so you had to pump. Um, you had to pump it with light in order to excite the electrons in the in the YAG rod, and then the electrons would jump out of their orbits. And when they jump back in, they would emit coherent light, which right. is what a laser is. So we would uh, we were designing the pump cavities, which was basically two elliptical reflectors overlap. So you put the, the arc lamp at one focus of the ellipse and they'd put a, a rod at the other focus and then they would focus the light from the arc lamp onto the rod, excite it, and we get it to laze. And you had to cool this, so you had to do water cooling systems. And so my job was to design the pump cavity and try to figure out how to hold yeah, those so, components in there and all that. So you had this parallel track, and I know that people probably want to stop talking about lasers and want us to get into Led Zeppelin yeah. and what it's like to tour with them. But at the but I think what's important about this parallel from what I know of your story is that you solved something really cool, like really awesome, like being part of Led Zeppelin or part of all of these bands, Three Dog Night even, and yeah. all of these other things, eventually James Taylor and... Um, you know, Phil Collins and Genesis and those things is, is that you were doing this thing that was really cool, but it was not the pursuit of coolness that got you there. And it was not the pursuit of coolness that kept you there. Right. It was this insanely skilled, 
engineering background and backbone that brought that innovation to market. Right. Would you agree with that or am I off? No, I think that's right. I, I was always into it for the technical, for the, from the technology perspective. And that, but that's why they needed you. That was right. the demand that kept you in the yeah. room. And it was that level of expertise that it took to solve some of these problems. But that level of expertise was really the backbone of that was just interest. That's right. You just had interest in it. I just liked so it. You just liked it, and you started putting yeah. these things together. Right. And I've always found in my life that it's that kind of divide of just understanding how serious you have to take something, but how approachable and accessible it is. Yes. Because it's really the backbone of getting that smart and going after those things is really just putting those things in your life. That's right. And there's a lot of ways to put really intelligent, smart things in your life but it starts with the interest level and in you know, pursuing it. That's right. So back and you have to really care about it. You, you have, have to, to really care about it. You want to do it. Yeah. yeah, and if you don't care about it, you just can't do it. That's yeah. what I've also found, right? Yeah. Is that if you're not interested in something from an intellectual point of view, yeah. you're going to be in a lot of pain. Yeah, and it's like playing an instrument. You have to really want to do it to do it because you, the only way to learn to play is you just got to do it over and over again. Right. And if you don't really want to do it, nobody can make you do it. So it's, it's a... You just have to have a passion for it. Right. So you were at TI. Yeah. I kind of think of this part of your story as like walking into like Joe versus the volcano. Like there's like flickering yeah. fluorescent lights going on in a building with like seven foot ceilings. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was a very traditional place. Traditional. And uh, it was, uh, but it was a great learning, you know, a lot of great companies have grown out of Texas Instruments. Yeah, Texas, that's an that's a amazing ex- company. It was right? extremely innovative. And uh, while I was there, unaware, of course, you know, Jack Kilby was off working on inventing the first integrated circuit. Right. Uh, which happened right about the time I was there. And um, I didn't know him, of course, or anything. I was in a different group. But what I learned in that laser group is it exposed me to optics and uh, physics and you know things that uh, I drew on. Not not as I wasn't just an engineer later on, but I it, the basic knowledge of it I, I drew on later as we developed other things. Right, right. So um, you've got your day job. Yep. Right, and uh, you're still are you still playing in the band? Still playing in the band, and okay. we're still. Uh, we're still doing the sound stuff on the weekends, too. Right. So you've got three things going, yeah. right? And yeah. then uh, right around this time, you met Mom. Uh, I met Mom, yeah, in 1970. Yeah. 1970, right? So, man, you've got a full life. Got a lot going on, yep. Right. And um, what what do you think in your life was lacking at this time? Um, I didn't have much lacking. I was pretty happy. I mean, I, I, was, I wasn't... Uh, you didn't want for much? You were I making want, money? Yeah, yeah. I'd... Your side—they hu- call them side hustles today. You had a lot of side hustles. Yeah, and you know the first thing I did when I got my job at TI is I went down to the Chrysler dealer and I bought a 1968 Dodge Charger, brand got your new. First paycheck. First and made paycheck. A really smart decision. And I bought a brand new car. My first brand <laughs> funny, new car. Funny you never presented that to me <laughs> in that way growing up. You know, like, oh yeah, I blew my first check on a 1968 Charger. It wasn't the first check. I had to finance it. it okay. Cost me eighty eight dollars a month for eight years or where it was. Yeah. But it was a that was a love the car. It was awesome. Yeah. Kept it for ten years. I wish I I shouldn't have sold it. It'd be worth a fortune if yeah, I kept it. Yeah, me and it. you both. 
which, yeah. yeah, but you did. They yeah. probably wrecked it in some sort of... Uh, no, I never did. It got stolen one time, broke my heart, but uh, never wrecked it. Yeah. Well, I'm saying somebody probably bought it and put it on Dukes of Hazzard. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Wasn't that the car they used in Dukes of Hazzard? Yeah. 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 Okay. So you, um, you've got a full life. You yeah. got all this stuff going, and once we decided uh, decided to uh, start the sound company, Shoko. Yeah, I knew I had to make some changes, so I, I decided to resign from TI. Okay. Because once we started realizing we were going to be touring, that we were going to be, I was going to be on the road. Yeah. And I couldn't keep a full time. So did job. you get the first gig first, and then you resigned? Yeah. Like, is there a little order of operations there? You can no, eliminate. I, I, we got once we realized that we were going to be going on the road. Then I then I quit. Yeah, so the idea, you would have, would you have ever just decided to go pursue an idea and quit your job, or do you believe that you kind of have to work towards it and wait for a signal? Um, well, I think, um, I don't know if, I don't know, I, I, I think in my, my personality, I kind of, I like to go from one stepping stone to the other, so I, I, I'm, I don't know if I would have just leaped out there without anything. Right. Uh, I think I kind of like to kind of see something developing and then kind of go for it. Yeah. And the, but what you were going for had a lot of momentum yeah. and had yeah. a lot of clear signal. Yeah. There was relationships there, yeah. maybe conversations going yeah. on. If we could do this, and I mean, the biggest risk once I gave up the job at TI was how I was going to uh, support myself, and it was a leap of faith that we could get the sound business up fast enough to start paying a salary. But we were able to do it. We were able to get two systems out there operating pretty quickly. Right. Maxon was mixing on one. Because the other thing we had to do, you know, in addition to building the sound systems and load the truck, you know, which is going back to my experience with the band when I handled all the equipment. So I just took that same experience yes. to this. I got into designing all the pieces of equipment to fit in the truck and figure out how to load the truck and all that. Yeah, and just uh, for the listeners, uh, how that translates to a father teaching his son things <laughs> is maybe you're going to go off to college and then you walk out to the garage one day and your father has taped off a, what, yeah. like a five by eight square yeah. and he actually <laughs> makes you put all of the stuff you're going to put in the truck into the square first because you need to mock up packing for college. Yeah, that was a trailer. We're going to haul a trailer out there. Yeah. We'll make sure it all fits. I just want you to know that these are not, you know, these <laughs> lessons have reverberated through all levels of there your you. life. <laughs> right. Well, you learn the hard way. You, do, you can't, if you wait to the last minute and realize it doesn't fit, the, you're kind of the, the problem up, the, with, up the creek without the paddle. The problem with being your son is that almost all of your ideas are valid. <laughs> you know, they've all been weather tested, right? I don't know. That's right. Yeah. Well, they, were, they all weren't valid, but the ones I talk about are. Right, I got you. So, um, anyway, so we decided to quit TI, and we and we uh, we also at that point I couldn't do the band anymore, so I had to stop playing in the band. So the band broke up, and we uh, just focused on on doing the sound thing. But the the thing we had to learn also, we had to become sound engineers because there wasn't we had to mix the sound. So. Maxon had a huge advantage because he'd been a recording engineer, so he really understood mixing. Right. I had to sort of learn how to do it. But uh, it, that was a lot of fun because that was once you got to the show and set all the gear up and did a little sound check, make sure all the mics worked, and it was up to you to actually make the gig happen. So uh, Led Zeppelin hired the second best sound engineer. Uh, they, engineer. They, they got the second best. That's right. <laughs> but I was good for them because I right. loved their music. So. Right. 
and uh, it was really it was really fun going on the road with them because they were an extremely good group. Yeah, I mean, you know, epic, and they they would have sounded good. Would their type of music sounded good with the old equipment? No, like it no. needed it needed the muscle. Yeah, it, needed it, the power. It, it took it took me several years to get the sound system evolved to where I was really felt like I was really. Happy Even working with it. for them, like, yeah, yeah. We, so. we kept constantly innovating and improving the sound systems as we went along. Yeah, and so what were some of those innovations that happened because you were on the road? <clears throat> well, the the main innovation was the packaging, because it took a long time to learn how to package the equipment to survive uh, going in a truck all the time. You know, right, rattling around, rattling and... around. You had to learn how to pack the truck tightly. You couldn't have any. Thing rolling around in there we've quickly realized that we had to put wheels on everything every single piece of gear had to have wheels you couldn't move it without wheels so you ended up with having all the everything packaged in some sort of box plywood box right and then the box would have wheels on it and you'd have to have handles and lids and doors and so you had to figure out how to all the hardware required for all of that and you quickly learned that Every piece of equipment had to be smooth-sided. It could be no protrusions because if you ever had anything sticking out, a bolt head or anything like that, and you put it up next to another cabinet, by the time you got to the next town, that bolt head would have eaten holes and everything it was so, next so to. So a, a screw sticking out the side of the it, cabinet. It was just, it was just, and you're using plywood, so it just is like you might just, as well take a chainsaw yeah, to the plywood. Exactly. And, it would just end up being a pile of sawdust when yeah, you got there. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, I mean, we've talked a lot about, I've really, you know, looked at our relationship and your ability to kind of tell me these business lessons over my life as one of my first MBAs um, and really just learning kind of business admin. But what I find fascinating about it is that you always had kind of these intent, right? Like you had this goal of, you know, doing something cool and maybe making a little music, right? Yeah. And that, that always like kind of like had a little collision where it's like, oh, well, if I want to make some music, I got to make the sound system, right? Yeah. And now you're going on tour and you're like, yeah, I'm going to be the sound engineer. I'm going to go set up the sound. But now you're kind of logistics. Right, right? exactly. Now you've all of a sudden got to solve this logistics problem. That's right. And so you're constantly innovating and getting these signals of where it is. And you, you know, I think all entrepreneurs have that. And then you start chasing things that become bad ideas, that become out of your skill set. Right. right. Like maybe later in your career, I think you started a trucking company. Yeah. Right. Because, yeah, you're doing it. You know, you're yeah. already doing all of these things and there's not really a solution in the market. And sometimes as entrepreneurs, getting that signal is the right pivot. And sometimes it's the wrong one where you end up losing millions of dollars. That's correct. Yeah. And so I hope that we can kind of explore that later on. Yeah. Um, later in your story where that becomes relevant. But it is a theme that has gone through your whole career. You get into a new space you have a lot of signal of all these opportunities and then choosing the right one becomes really difficult. Yeah. Right. But it's also, um, in a way, it kind of sorts it for you because um, like the packaging of the equipment became job number one because it was right there in your face. You had to do it. Right. And not only did you have to package the gear, you had to make it where it would plug together quickly and reliably. And uh, an example of, of that was uh, very early on, we, 
we knew we had to what's called biamp the equipment. And what that means is in a, in a speaker system like a home hi-fi or something like that, um, you have different transducers in the box that reproduce different frequencies. So you have the bass speaker, the 15-inch speaker that reproduces the low frequencies. And then you typically will have a mid-range device that will do mid-range frequencies and then a high frequency. Well, you have to have some way to divide up the frequencies being fed to those components because if you feed low frequencies to a mid-range or high-frequency component, you blow it up because right. it can't handle it. it can't, it's not designed for that, right? Right. So... And when you say blow it up, you literally mean yeah, the, literally the component blow it up. explodes. Yeah, you just set it on fire or destroy the speaker. Fire, really? Like sparks and fire? Well, it can if you put too much power into it. You can overheat things. But yeah. mo mostly it just blows up the diaphragm. Have or, you ever caught a whole thing of speakers on no, fire? No, never, never, never did. But yeah. I've had a lot of smoke come out of things. <laughs> right. Um, so it, uh, most speakers use passive crossovers. If you have, a, like most home hi-fi speakers and the Altec A7, for example, you would, you, you would just plug in your amplifier with all frequencies into, a, into the box. And inside the box, they would use capacitors and transformers and stuff to separate the frequencies mechanically inside the box. Right. And that works okay, but for what we were trying to do with high-powered sound systems, we knew we had to by amplify it and what we did is we separated those frequencies out before we got to the boxes and we would feed certain frequency bands to each box right separately but you had to make sure you didn't plug the low frequency <laughs> signal into the high frequency box or you'd blow it up right and you're talking about both of these coming in on the same wire we right. have separate wires. Separate yeah. wires. Did they have the yeah. same? Yeah, okay. So what happened was the first gig we did where we set up our biamp system, we used microphone cables for the low frequencies and the mid frequencies, and they were identical. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we always thought we could figure out, you know, remember what was what. We got to the first gig, and, and Max and I were there doing it ourselves, and we plugged them in backwards and blew everything up right, right. at the gig. So, you know, we thought, when you, you know, say you blew the gig, you like you literally had gone to the gig. Yeah. Gone set to the up gig, all the set stuff. stuff and, and we blew up the mid range before uh, the horn. show even yeah, starts. We had to rush home and we had some spares, of course. We learned early on you have lots of spares, so we had to replace them. But we, we, we realized you can't have you have to have it idiot proof. You have to have it to where you have to do is you have to engineer it as much as you can where you make up for human error. Yeah. So what we did was we reversed the sex of the connectors for lows and highs. So whereas you had the male XLR connector for the lows, you had a male XLR female for the highs. Right. And so that was the most practical, pragmatic solution right. you could possibly come up to without right. color coding the cables or creating well, the, a yeah the color coding still had a lot of human error in it because you could not pay attention and realize what you're doing right whereas if you made the sex of the connectors backwards you physically couldn't plug them in right you couldn't do it wrong right and so we we realized that we had to kind of put that same kind of thinking as much as we could throughout the system and so as the system evolved 
we continuously made sure we engineered it so to be were, quick to you, set up and to be uh, foolproof. Yeah, and you were on the road either using like temporary labor, kind of helping right. you set up and right. do things. You and Jack Maxson were right. in different places, circling, basically making right. loops around right. the U.S., coming back, right. and then making small innovations. Right. The tour, the band would go on break. You guys would have three months to do a new build. Right. And so you had this kind of natural, monetized innovation cycle happening yeah and kind of free advertising because all the big bands would go into town yeah. all the other bands would go see that band yeah and then it was this kind of like word of mouth all like marketing and sales and kind of business yeah. infrastructure happening but the most important thing about it was is that the that the, the feedback from the customer to us was direct i was getting the absolute direct feedback from the artists i was working with yeah, and I was also in the environment physically doing the work, so I experienced all the issues. I experienced all the problems. There was no need for helplines or support desks or any of that stuff. I was it. I was on site. I was doing it, and Maxim was too. So when we came home together and sat down and talked about stuff, we we knew what we needed to do to make it better. We needed to solve certain problems and. And all that, and so the innovation and the ability to solve the problem and progress the technology was 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 it really made me realize how difficult it is when you start to separate the customer from the engineering and development people because it's hard to bridge that communication gap. Right. And as the company got big and more and more successful, we started to experience those problems because. As Maxon and I both came off the road and the company got bigger and we in our jobs became more managerial and we weren't touring as much and we weren't actually out there mixing and we weren't doing the gigs, then we started to have struggle and we started to make mistakes and we started to have to it was you know harder to keep up with things and and uh and, and our our direct contact with the user, the customer was was, was starting to get long and yeah, really painful. And put people in the middle. Yeah, you, you know? see that a lot today with the way companies yeah. are, right? Yeah. Like always doing these stupid surveys yeah. all the time, just yeah. desperate for this signal. Yeah, and it is one of the things that keeps a business aligned to the market, right? It does. Is whether or not you're listening. Yeah. So that you know, we're going to talk about that and more, and we're going to get some dirty details about what it was like on the road with Led Zeppelin yeah. when we come back with the mix with Matt and Dan. with Matt and Dan. Uh, you know, today we're talking to Rusty Bruchet, and we are talking about uh, his experience on the road with Led Zeppelin as the sound man and kind of how he innovated and started um, some of uh, the greatest companies America has ever seen. <laughs> um, we'll see if that's a little bit bold of a claim. Um, so you were um, at the point in your career, the part of the story that we are talking about is you had gone in and been taken out of the market, you know, you had been in the market in Dallas, 
Led Zeppelin comes by, Three Dog Night comes by, takes 100% or 66% of your staff right. and takes them on the road. Right. And then all of a sudden, you've got this company that's three people. How many, how many people were in your company at the time? Uh, well, we would start. We started hiring people to go with us, you know, roadies to yeah. help us out. And also, I hired a person or two. I was building all of the systems in Maxon's garage. And so the early systems were all made out of plywood, and so I was—I had a, a little wood shop in the yeah. garage, and so I was building all the cabinets and assembling everything. And Maxim was doing a lot of the wiring and stuff, and and so we would hire people to help us as we got bigger and needed okay. to build more systems. But basically, we got the systems up. We had two of them, and we—he uh, did one, and I did the other, and I went on the that first so, tour was at Zeppelin in 1970. So, yeah, so you're hitting the road with Led Zeppelin. What was that like? I mean, people probably have an idea, well, but like, what was it really like? Well, it was um, extremely intense because uh, they were very demanding, and um, they had they had road crews. You know, the bands would would tour with uh, with road crews. That movie Spinal Tap was not really far off the mark. It was pretty. That was pretty close to the. To the way it was as far as the environment yeah and um the environment was wide open it was really the wild west of the industry because there was no everything was new and there's no infrastructure but uh, when i went on the road with them the, one of the odd things is they wanted me to mix um on the stage with them so i, I put the the mixing uh console or rack uh behind the speakers and I, I mixed right there on the stage right beside them so I was like you know five feet from them yeah I mean and, what was uh, that like yeah it was in retrospect it was fantastic because yeah. they sounded so good so and, you had a first kind you know first right hand account of like yeah. being on stage yeah. with them looking at the audience so the first whole tour that I did I mixed on the stage and how did I people had, react to them live in shows oh they, they were just they was crazy it enamored was and oh yeah it was, they were absolutely electric and the the environment was electric whenever they when the when the crowd would fill up the the, the arena and right before showtime you could just feel this incredible tension in the air and it was just a real yeah having been to a you know not you know having gone to a lot of shows with you i still yeah. that's a palatable thing yeah it was yeah. the only other artist that i ever felt it had the same level was guns and roses they were they amazing the show feeling. Pink Floyd had a little bit, and then you know. Well, they were. It was a different type of. Tension, yeah, maybe though. different. Energy. Zeppelin had that sort of a bad boy image, and, and uh, their, their music like something know. something was about to yeah, happen. Yeah, right. So, um, at first tour, we went all around the U.S., and then we went to uh, England, uh, Europe. Did a European tour. And we went to Japan and did a Japanese tour. And I'd never been to any place. Did you just check in the speakers, the 90 speakers you needed? To... No, I, I, we just, <laughs> I took, I hauled that equipment all over the world. We, we, we freighted it over there. Yeah. And uh, I went to, to uh, Australia and we did an Australian tour too. Wow. And uh, it, was, it was really a great experience. I'd never been much out of Dallas or Texas. And then that first year, I went all over the world, and first two years, I guess. And uh, it was really an eye-opening, exciting thing. 
Yeah, I mean, I think traveling that much has had an interesting effect on the way that you've gone yeah. into retirement. Like, you're kind of over it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah. Like, you know, like the idea of going on, you know, a bunch of trips or whatever, you guys just don't, you don't do that a lot, right? Well, we, yeah. I mean, yeah. you do a bit, but not, I've been, you know. I've traveled people... pretty much my whole life, so. Yeah. It's not as quite as exciting. I got, you know, on American Airlines, over 5 million cumulative miles and stuff, right. you know. Yeah, so you've been in a couple places. Yeah. Yeah, so you're on stage with Led Zeppelin. You're getting, like, that's not a very good place to mix sound from. No, it's not. Nobody would say, hey, guy, stand behind the speaker and tell me how that works. In fact, it's amazing it worked as well as it did. I I, I had four individual mix audio mixers, and I put each guy on a separate mixer, and they had a VU meter on each mixer, and I could kind of gauge the level of each guy by getting a sort of the match-up, you know. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed uh, working with John Bonham on the drum sound. He was a real uh, he was real concerned with the way his drums sounded, and he was always interested in the sound system and the way his drums were mixed. And right, I uh, I just he was such an incredible musician uh, that I really enjoyed that part of it. And then the rest of them were all they were all equally gifted. You know, yeah. it was the thing that made them yeah, so good. Yeah, that was a good, talented, was talented group. All four guys were all virtuosos in their own area. I, I thought one of the anecdotes you told me, and, uh, you know, listening to a couple, like, of their live sounds, like, uh, their live shows, is, you know, they would, never, uh, they, would ne- they would never do a sound check. No, never. Right? So when you listen to a live show or a bootleg or something, like, your mixing kind of sucked, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, the first few notes, because... Yeah. But that wasn't like your fault or your quality. Certainly, it hangs on your reputation, <laughs> right? It's your job. It usually took me. The, I had to get about halfway through the first song to get it to come into balance. <laughs> to get it the, dialed in. They didn't believe in sound checks. Never would do one. That's hilarious. So they just show up and we'd start. You know. Yeah, and I mean, did, <laughs> why, why didn't you hire somebody to stand up there and get it? Well, done? we would. You know, as time went on, I would have people get on the drum kit and plunk around the drums and stuff, yeah. but. You know, once you never know exactly what the relative balance is going to be. Depends on what, yeah, what mood each guy's in and how hard he's playing his instrument. You know. So this is a very fluid environment, right? I mean, this is just everybody's just kind of winging it. It's fluid, but it's it's extremely high energy and demanding and a lot of pressure. You, you couldn't, you know, things just couldn't not work. You know. Right. That's the other thing about the sound equipment is, it had to work, and it had to work at eight o'clock every night you know there wasn't any uh delaying the the deadline you know you worked right. to the to the thing and so and you also had to worry about reliability you just couldn't have it go off and on during the sh- at the show and so there was there was all kinds of pressure to never have a problem yeah but a lot of that backbone of your childhood and your personality i think is one of the reasons why you rose up in this environment yeah. right because you had a lot of different signals People, and you mentioned a lot of the people in that time who went the wrong direction and started chasing the cool factor or got on drugs and and started chasing those things, simply just died or feathered out, right? And so the idea of having somebody that was highly reliable, who was passionate about making things really big, right? right? I mean, all of these things were like the perfect storm for you to kind of come into this space and have the qualities and give off the signal that you were the guy to invest in or or put this money towards. That's true. And Maxon was the same way. And 
Calmes in his own way is, was also. We just really wanted to build a good company and we wanted to deliver a good service. Right. And we really wanted to wanted it to sound good. Yeah, you know? and your whole history, did you ever have a show fail? I mean, you got a couple of mic stands kicked at you, right? Uh, I, I had the sound go off a time or two where I would have, I, I remember one particular one, a Zeppelin show in uh, Los Angeles, which was, you know, the two, two biggest, most important markets were L.A. and New York, and we were playing the forum in Los Angeles, and the sound just stopped in the middle of a song. I panicked, and the power, the, the, the console I was working on gone dead. And so I, I thought somebody kicked a plug out, so I ran to the stage and was looking to see if the, everything was plugged in and it was all working, so I ran back to the board, and I realized that a fuse had blown. Mm -hmm. And so I took the fuse out, and, of course, I had spares. I put a new one in, and it came back on, and I finished the show. But it's, you know, that, that probably took maybe 90 seconds or two minutes, but it felt like 10 hours. Slow you know? motion working. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like 100,000 or however many people. Yeah, 20,000 people. 20,000 people look at you. Yeah. Right? See what yeah. you're doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't fun, you know. So yeah. You just, uh, you just don't want that thing to happen. So you just, it didn't happen very often. Occasionally it would, but not, not very often. Yeah, so a high-stakes game, even though high it's, all, stakes, it's yeah. all entertainment, but it's pretty serious stuff, yeah. right? A lot of money involved, a lot, lot of, of people, yeah. a lot of reputations involved. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it seems like you were the right guy. Well, we, we, uh, it, was a, it was a core um, competency of the company was to be reliable. Right, yeah. Interesting. And, and we worked hard at it. Right, and vetting people and getting rid of them yeah. if they didn't get there. Yeah. Um, so you weren't the first roadie, but you're close. Probably not the first, but I, I, was, I was a roadie along with everything else because I was, you know, loading the equipment and unloading and setting it all up and doing everything. Right, which is not a glamorous job, right? No. Everybody wants to get backstage. Everybody wants the backstage pass. Not a lot back there, right? <laughs> no, and, and the thing is, it was like a 20, 24-hour-a-day gig, too, because we would we showed up for, sound, for a stage call at 8 a.m., and we unloaded everything and got it all set up, and then we'd do the show um, at 7 or 8 p.m. at night. The show would be over by 11, and then it would take two to three hours to pack up, so we would be leaving the arena about 2 o'clock in the morning and we had to drive to the next gig. Right. And we would typically not book them more than 300 miles apart so we could get there in six hours. So if we left at 2 in the morning, we could make the stage call the next day at 8 o'clock. Wow. And so we had to sleep in the truck. And mm -hmm. by then I had somebody, one or two guys with me, and we would trade off driving. But somebody had to drive that first leg, you know, after having worked 20-something right. straight hours. So. It was a very physical, demanding, difficult life. You know, we weren't traveling with the band. We were. Yeah, no, no, we no. The band was uh, taking their Learjet or doing yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. Having the party, and yeah. you guys were doing the work. Yeah, yeah. That's and also. And you know, you you know, when you walk into an arena from the back door, you know, it's, it's it's a, dirty, grungy place. You know. Yeah. It's, oh yeah. There's rats and there's yeah. all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Right. They yeah. kick the rats out to set up the concession stand. <laughs> yeah. I know that to be true, having worked at some of these places. Uh, you know, yeah. you, and not small rats, giant rats. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a, it's it's just part of the job, but it it uh, it, it teaches you a lot. I mean, it, you're just down there in the nitty gritty, and you just you just learn all the things you need to know to make it all work. 
Right, right. So you're going through, and you're on tour with Led Zeppelin. Um, pretty solid start, right? They get yeah. bigger. Your company gets more yeah. notoriety. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? And uh, you're starting to capture more deals. Did you guys, that first four or five years, were you just taking two clients? or I mean, No, we grew up to about 10 sound systems pretty quick. And they were constantly on the road. Yeah. And, and, you, and why did you stay with Led Zeppelin? Was it because you just kind of had the relationship? And Well, I had the relationship, and they always asked for me to do it. Okay. And so then there's a lot of personal choice and yeah. what they wanted. Everybody got yeah. their crew and wanted to keep the success going. Because yeah. in those days, the relationship between the sound and lighting people and the band was, was direct. It was personal, and it was... Yeah, and do you Today, remember? it's not that way anymore, but back then... You know, yeah. they wanted, they had specific people they wanted to go on Well, I mean, in a them. way, they started your company, right? They, did, they came yeah. through and they gave you an opportunity. Yeah. And I mean, that was a really big gift was, yeah. from those guys. It and, was. you know, a lot of gratitude back yeah. to them for that. And in 1973, we decided to add lighting to the to sound so we yeah. started offering lighting services yeah but like not like lighting you think of today like lighting like like gel lighting with yeah, like some light bulbs using car in cans it. which were a thousand watt tungsten yeah. fixtures and they used a piece of gel for color right but uh, we 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 were very innovative in lighting as well and we figured out you know, how to uh, build trusses to hold the lights and we got into rigging right where we'd put steel cable in the ceiling and chain motors to lift everything off the floor. And uh, Zeppelin was a big client for lighting. We did a lot of really big productions yeah, for and them. We're going to get into lighting because, I mean, if people don't know, you helped invent the automated yeah. light, right? Like So right. from that innovation, stacking on, you did sound, you got into basic parkhand lighting. Yeah. And parkhand lighting sucks. It yeah. doesn't move around. You had this yeah. basic need. And then yeah. you invented something that is still used today in pretty much the same form factor. Right. That's moving to digital and LEDs a little bit. But right. for a very long stretch of time, this was representative of you being at a show with seeing these light shows. Right. Still is. Yeah. yeah. And so you did all, you know, but just to wrap up, like you were on the road with Led Zeppelin. Can you tell me like, is there like a couple stories that you know, like crazy yeah. stories or cool stories? Like, what did you think of the coolest thing that ever happened during well, that time? Well, in retrospect, you know, uh, nowadays um, everybody is really into vintage guitars. And when I look back on everything I owned, like my first bass was a 1957 Fender Precision bass. Um, the guy, a guitar player in our band's first guitar was a 1960 Stratocaster. All those guitars now are worth thousands, thousands of dollars. And we, back then, we bought them for 300 bucks a piece, and we traded them all the time. Because our idea, we wanted a new guitar. We didn't want an old guitar. Yeah. So um, in light of all that, uh, we were in, in Australia on the very first tour. I think it was 1972 or so. And um, we were staying, we were in Perth, which is on the, on the ocean on the far side of Australia. And uh, we were staying in kind of a hotel, kind of a motel hotel thing. And I hear a knock. I'm in the room. I hear a knock on the door. And I answer the door. And it's Jimmy Page is standing there with his Les Paul. Yeah. And he says, uh, Rusty, my, my Les Paul, there's something wrong with the pickup. I'm not getting anything out of the back pickup. And so I said, okay. So I, we went in there. And I laid in on the bed in this hotel room. And. I had my tools with me and stuff, and I just uh, tore into the guitar right there on the bed, and I just took it apart. 
<laughs> took all the strings off. I took pickups out. I had, had, a, had you ever done this before? Is the well, I had a I had a Gibson bass that I'd taken apart a bunch, so yeah. I, I was familiar with Gibson guitars and how they were put no, together. No, no instruction manual. Let's start no, by ripping Jimmy yeah, Page's guitar apart. apart. So I took yeah. it apart, and I had a v, I had a, a, a voltmeter with me, and so when I got the I got the uh, I got it apart, and I took the rear pickup and I disconnected. Took a soldering iron, disconnected one lead to the pickup, and I put the VU meter on it, and it was open, which meant that there was a break in the winding of the pickup, and that's why it wasn't working. Yeah. And so I said, "Well, Pagey, I call it, we everybody called him Pagey. I said, Pagey, this this pickup needs to be rewound." And you know, in those days, we always had a re, a, a promoter that was always with us, and there was always a promoter rep or somebody either the promoter himself or somebody that worked for the promoter. And there, in this case, there was a promoter rep there. And I said, uh, here we are in Australia in 1972, right? Yeah. And there's you know, like the whole population of Australia, and, and that was probably, I don't know, 2 million people. I mean, it was, you know, we were, it was yeah. a long way away. And I said, I looked at this guy and I said, is there anybody in Australia that can rewind a Gibson humbucking pickup? And the guy, amazingly enough, said, yeah, yeah, there's a guy that does it. <laughs> yeah, I know a guy. Yeah, I know a guy. I know yeah. a guy. So I took the pickup out of the guitar, and I handed it to this guy, and I said, okay, well, go off and get this rewound. And he went off and somehow or other got that thing rewound and brought it back, I think that day. Yeah. And I checked it with my meter, and it was... I got, it, was, it was good, and I put it back in the guitar, yeah. and I re-soldered it and put the guitar back together, and the guitar was, uh, was covered in resin because Paige always played the guitar with the bow as yeah. part of the show, and he used violin resin on the bow, so the guitar was covered in this white... Uh, coating of resin because he never bothered to clean it up or anything. Yeah. And so I I I cleaned it and uh, got it all back looking good and got all the resin off and polished it all up and put it together and checked it and everything was working. I remember when I handed it back to him, he said, "Hey, thanks, mate," and uh, took it to the gig and he's <laughs> used it ever since. But I was thinking, there I was with a guitar that's probably worth you know. Nowadays, probably, I don't know, millions of dollars. Yeah. You'd rip it apart. took the thing apart in the bed. Yeah. No idea what you were doing. No idea what I was doing. Yeah, I can do this. Yeah, why not? And this pickup off to somebody I didn't even know. Yeah. They go off in Australia and find some idiot that knows how to rewind them. Yeah. Mind-boggling, you know? Yeah, the things that kind of move forward. Well, there, you heard it first, right? Jimmy Page's guitar, not 100% authentic parts. That's right. Right? There's some uh, Australian stuff. There's an Australian wound pickup in the number two position. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So, um, listen, you've been listening to The Mix with Matt and Dan. We are going to take a break and come back for another episode uh, after uh, what happened to uh, the company and uh, Rusty Bruchet when he got off the road with Led Zeppelin and uh, got into running a business. So, excited to hear those things and uh, maybe a little bit more on how the automated light was invented as well. So stay tuned and uh, come back, and thanks for listening.